Today, October 22, is a very significant day in the history of our beginnings. Welcome to the Adventist History Podcast, episode number 36, The Color Line, part 2. Last time, we talked about how Seventh-day Adventists finally began their mission work in the southern United States in earnest. Ellen White had declared the American Southland to be the most urgent mission field of the moment. And yet, she was stuck in Australia. Ellen had never missed the mission field of the moment until now. What she couldn't do in person, she did with her pen And that's why her appeals for people to work in the South are so urgent during this time. Now, several answered the call. And while men like Charles Kinney and R.M. Kilgore had been working in the South for years, dodging Sunday laws and mobs, Edson White gets most of the glory for building a boat and heading down the Mississippi. That's where we're going to pick up our story in this episode. Now, is it fair that Edson gets so much attention? Let's start with a few reasons why Edson gets this glory. First, because the work he did was amazing and long-lasting, and we're going to get into that in a little bit. Second, because he's Edson White. He's Ellen White's son, the prophet's boy. Whatever someone with the name of White does, it's going to get attention. Third, because his project was sexy bold. I mean, the dude built a boat and sailed it down the Mississippi. It had never been done before. The boat almost even sank before it got to the Mississippi. Everything surrounding this adventure was full of drama and fascinating stories and innovation and creative ministry. It was the new shiny thing. Fourth, Edson gets the glory because he suddenly became a master publicist and fundraiser. Before long, he had his own newspaper going, keeping the church informed about his venture. The best that Kilgore and Kinney could do was write articles in the review. Edson essentially gave the people a new review. More than that, the people knew that when they subscribed to Edson's paper, that all of the money that they paid was going to support that work which Ellen White considered to be the most urgent missionary project of the moment. And of course... Edson wrote a book, too, called The Gospel Primer, and this book did three things. First, its revenue would fund his mission. Its text would be used to teach people how to read, and not just read, but read the basic gospel message of the Bible. And, of course, all that wouldn't mean anything if it didn't sell. So, Edson sent letters to the elders of many Adventist churches, inviting them to support his mission. And it was a cheap book, too, selling from 25 to 50 cents. And it sold. It sold like crazy. It sold 55,000 copies in the first year. Edson also brought a photographer on board his boat. And his paper would feature photographs of the churches he built and the classes he taught. And before long, the idea really caught on that this was a great way to advertise and chronicle mission work. Basically, Edson was way ahead of his time. And finally, the last reason why Edson gets the glory, because the need in the South was Edson's own salvation. We talked about that last time. It woke him up from his spiritual laziness and gave him a purpose. People like those kind of stories. And it was a story that happened again and again because Edson the rebellious prophet's kid seemed to attract other misfit toys to him 
And those misfit toys also seem to catch the vision and get lit up by the Holy Spirit. Edson's crew was initially from several different denominations, but the first convert was the boat's black cook. And when the steamer was docked in Illinois to get supplies, a curious young man asked if he could ride with them as far as Peoria. They told him to hop on board. Why not? And while they made their cruise, the young man read Ellen White's article, Our Duty to the Colored People. And when they arrived in Peoria, the man jumped up and said, Boys, I'm going south with you. And that's how things went with Edson. The journey of the Morning Star was the most exciting missionary adventure since the sailing of the Pitcairn to the South Pacific. And better than the Pitcairn, because it was closer to home because wonderful stories flowed from the Morning Star and inspired Adventists all across the continent. Edson had placed himself and his mission and his boat and his team at the center of it all. So let's keep steaming with Edson a little further down our narrative before turning inland back to Kinney and company. Because I don't want to leave them behind. They've been overlooked too often in Adventist history. But we've got to start with Edson. So get your life jacket on and get on board. The first major stop was Vicksburg, Mississippi. Now, Vicksburg was a proud southern city which had been humiliated in the Civil War by Union forces under General Grant. Grant mercilessly bombarded the city every single day from both land and sea for months until the city surrendered. I mean, people were living in caves, Men, women, and children were buried alive or blown up by the nonstop bombardment. It was in many ways a taste of the mass bombing in the world wars to come. Grant's victory at Vicksburg on July 4th effectively tore the South in half. It came a day after Gettysburg, and so the writing was really on the wall for the Confederacy. Vicksburg was so bitter about the defeat that they refused to celebrate July 4th for the next 81 years. The Battle of Vicksburg gave Grant one more important thing, however. Control of the mighty Mississippi River. Northern troops and supplies could now flow freely south, and it was on this river that a ragtag crew of northern missionaries invaded Vicksburg. The effects of the war were still visible 30 years later. Trenches were carved all around the city. Craters dotted the landscape. It's amazing how life just kind of works around war. Empty artillery shells become flower planters or something. But northern troops couldn't impose northern values. And when Colonel Samuel Thomas set up shop in Vicksburg as the government's agent to help with reconstruction, he was shocked by the attitudes he saw. Wherever I go, he said, the street, the shop, the house, or the steamboat... I hear the people talk in such a way as to indicate that they are yet unable to conceive of the Negro as possessing any rights at all. Former slave owners openly threatened the freed slaves that once the northern soldiers left and they could regain power again, then they would, to quote Thomas again, catch hell. When there was an election in Vicksburg, white supremacists would patrol the streets with guns, daring any black man to leave their house and come vote. And while some of the violence had died down by 1895 when Edson and the Morning Star pulled up, there remained an atmosphere of palpable hostility to what Edson was trying to do. 
And of course, the Adventists weren't the only ones in Vicksburg trying to lend a hand. Parabaptist women were there also. They taught literacy classes. They helped freed slaves find jobs and, well, were just basically being social workers because that's what it meant to be an evangelist in the South during this time. They helped teach new mothers how to be good mothers. And we learn so much in life from the people around us who take the time to teach us and show us how life works. These young black women in Vicksburg found society conspiring against them so that they didn't learn the things the rest of us just take for granted. They needed people to come in and show them the ropes of life. The Morning Star and her crew came at an interesting time. About a year earlier, a black preacher named Alonzo Parker had come to town and began preaching in the churches, much like Edson was about to. Maybe he lacked tact, I don't know, but his strong moral stands got him kicked out of those churches. Undaunted, he went to the streets and started preaching. But as public opinion turned against him, a mob met him one day and just beat him to death. His final words, very much in the spirit of John the Baptist, were, There will come to you people of Vicksburg just one more chance from God. He will send you other messengers who will have a stricter message to bear than I have borne, and if you shall refuse to hear him, your fate will be sealed. Now, I'm not saying that Edson White and his team were those messengers prophesied by Alonzo Parker, but many in the town began to connect the dots. So when the Morning Star rolled up, they started thinking, Maybe we need to listen to these people. Maybe they're our last chance. One of the first things that Edson did is to visit one of the black churches, which was led by a former slave who once received 500 lashes just for having a hymn book, which, by the way, he didn't even know how to read. Edson used the church three days a week, including a Sunday service, and two nights during the week in which he taught literacy classes and basic Bible studies and things like that. Word spread, and soon enough, Edson was teaching Sunday school at other churches in the area and attending church on Sundays. Edson wasn't quick to tell everyone that they needed to keep Saturday as a Sabbath. I mean, many of the people he was working with couldn't read, so it hardly seemed like the most pressing issue. He and his team would simply keep Sabbath on the Morning Star themselves. There was nothing wrong in Adventism with going to church on Sunday or Monday or Tuesday or whatever, so long as you kept Sabbath. So no big deal. Well, that plan worked until two of the Baptist members heard singing coming from his boat on Sabbath, and they were pretty quick to figure out what was going on. So they asked Edson, why are we keeping Sunday as a Sabbath? To which Edson replied, I don't know why you're keeping Sunday. Why are you? Has God changed it? Well, they thought a minute and said, no, so why are we keeping Sunday? Edson said, hey, we aren't keeping Sunday. You're the one keeping Sunday. Down on the boat, we're keeping Sabbath. And just like that, they joined him. Now, of course, this ticked off the other churches in town who thought, ah, here, now we see the real purpose of these Adventists. They're coming to steal our sheep. So they shut their doors in Edson's face. But the good news is that they were ready to build a church of their own in Vicksburg. The bad news was that they had absolutely no money to do this. Now, I know what you're thinking. Matthew, didn't you just say that Edson's Gospel Primer book sold 55,000 copies in the first year? That's got to be worth something. How could Edson not have enough money? 
Oh, I'm glad you asked that question because that's fun. It turns out that sales of the gospel primer were plummeting. Look, the 1890s were a decade where Edson, Willie, and Ellen, pretty much the whole White family, were just completely fed up with how the Review and Herald Publishing Association was run. So expect to hear a little bit more about this when we visit Ellen White in Australia. Here's what happened. Many Adventists sold books door-to-door. They were called canvassers or call porters or whatever. And the problem for canvassers was that in the mid-1890s, fewer and fewer people were buying the big, high-profit books. So... They found one of James White's old books. They rewrote it a little bit and reprinted it, and it became this new hot-selling item. It was small and cheap, and so canvassers hoped to sell one to every home, right? Anybody could afford it. It sold for 10 cents cheaper than Edson's book and was, frankly, more useful to the general public. I mean, Edson's book was basically basic. It didn't sell well to Sunday school-going Americans who read the Gospels each week, who already knew how to read. So no one at the Review thought about what might happen if we sell two similar products for two similar amounts of money at the same time. We have a word for what's about to happen today. We call it cannibalism. Now the irony was that this other book, as we said, was just a revised version of something that James White had published long ago. That's right. Dad's book ended up crushing his son's book, severing the financial lifeline to the biggest evangelistic effort in the South. Now, Ellen White and Edson were furious about how clumsy this move was. I mean, how could you not see what was going to happen? I mean, Edson's book wasn't written to make him rich. It was written to make him a missionary. And so Ellen was of the opinion that the publishing association should have been more cautious about jeopardizing that mission. It was well known that some up in the firmament of church leadership didn't care much about Edson's mission, and this just seemed to have their fingerprints all over it. So Edson's work in the South needed money, lots of money, more money than was needed in other mission fields. Because Edson constantly found himself loaning money to people so that they could get food or shoes or medicine. And one time, Edson gave a man half of all the money he had in the world at that moment so that man wouldn't see his furniture get repossessed. It was only two months later that the man finally returned to Edson, and he did repay him, by the way. But two months later, he returned to Edson and said, Okay, so teach me more about this Sabbath thing. That's how evangelism went in the South, and it was so difficult for those in the North to understand just why it had to work this way in the South. I mean, you could go preach in New York and get baptisms. You could set up a tent anywhere, and people would come and listen, and they'd be receptive. Because there was this foundation of being white, financially stable Christians. The only thing that remains to be done is to convince one another of who has the truth. But in the South, things were different. You had to feed a man or clothe a man or educate a man before you could even get to the point where you could both talk about the Bible and what is true and what isn't. Right Then, maybe after you've done all that, he might start listening to what you have to say. Then he starts keeping Sabbath, and then he loses his job. Because we know that those Sunday laws were fierce in the South. We know that the prejudice was fierce in the South. So now you have to go help him find another job. 
And then the white people threaten to kick you out if you don't stop helping these black people. And then when you overcome all of that and you want to build a church, you realize that all of these people you've been working with are, frankly, too poor to help build a church. Now, compare that with the time James and Ellen were figuring out where to move the review 40 years ago. Believers in Vermont said, here's 500 bucks if you want to move the review here. Believers in Battle Creek, Michigan said, here's $1,200 if you want to move it here. So when they picked Battle Creek, believers helped James and Ellen to buy land and build a house. And I'm not saying it was easier. I mean, go listen to those early episodes again. But there's no denying that they had certain advantages, which is a really weird thing to say, given that 40 years later, the church has grown into this global institution, a global institution that is clumsily making life even harder for its best missionary in its most urgent mission field. So in the 1850s, a half dozen believers in Michigan freely offered James White $1,200. In the 1890s, a global church couldn't help Edson White come up with $100 to build a church. Now, I'm being a little unfair when I say that because money did come in. It mostly came from people in the North, like Dr. Kellogg, who sent money. The General Conference was supportive, too, but not enough to suggest that Edson's work was a huge priority for them. Back to the Vicksburg Church, I mean, the real story is where the other half of the money they needed came from. Of course, like with any other building project, they went way over budget, almost double over budget, and so the the money that came in from the north and elsewhere in the church just wasn't enough. The other half of that money had to come from Edson, his team, and the people that they were working with. And this is the amazing part. This is the miracle. Because most of those people, these freed slaves, made barely 50 cents a week And yet somehow this poor outcast group of former slaves scraped it together. They sacrificed. They gave their two widows mites. They went without. They wanted this church so badly because a church was so central to black social identity. It was a hub, a foundation for their community. And they bled for this church. At the end of it all, Edson summed it up perfectly when he said, Quote, right here I want to say that I never saw a firmer body of Seventh-day Adventists than the little colored company in Vicksburg, end quote. They inspired him with how much they wanted this. And with the new Vicksburg church just days old, an article appeared in the review suggesting that Adventists need to do more for the black people in the South. What if, the author wondered, We bought some farmland down south and taught people how to farm. Well, of course, many freed slaves did farm. The problem was, as this guy memorably put it, that they are, quote, the profitable prey of the store shark, the land shark, the saloon shark, and all the other sharks, end quote, who wanted to take a bite out of them. Ellen White loved the idea. She said, for Christ's sake, let us do something now. So... Add it to the list. By the end of 1895, the General Conference did add it to the list, and they decided to buy 360 acres just outside of Huntsville, Alabama, and build a school there to train freed slaves. Now, the land was an old plantation, said to have been run by one of the cruelest slave masters around, which just made it poetic. 
That school is known today as Oakwood University, the alma mater of some of the best preachers, singers, and civil rights leaders in the nation. The founding of Oakwood represents the crystallized strategy of work in the South. It comes down to one word, education. Education was the path, as General Conference Secretary Dan Jones would say, to raising up blacks to be equal with white. It can only be accomplished through education, or at least that was the best way to do it. Schools solved nearly all of the problems facing work in the South. Freed slaves could gather together without fear of mobs. They could be taught a useful trade like farming or building or whatever so that they could earn a fair wage, or at least as fair as they could get. And Adventists could teach their distinctive beliefs without exciting even more opposition from other Christians. And from these schools, like Oakwood, the graduates would go back out into society and plant even more seeds. Now, Oakwood would struggle mightily in those early days. I'm just going to tell you right now that this is going to be a running theme with the work in the South. There will usually be some kind of conservative, institutional, and benign neglect of the work among the black people. The school down the road from Oakwood today called Southern Adventist University, always seemed to do better. When Ellen White visited the area in 1904, the difference between the two schools was shocking to her. She said that the greatest mystery of all was the contrast between Southern and Oakwood, specifically how Southern tended to have nice facilities and Oakwood didn't. Not just nice buildings, you know, shiny new structures with all the latest technology, even just some of the most essential tools and equipments that every school should have. It wasn't wrong to have nice facilities, she said, except when your sister's school just down the road was struggling to keep its roof on, so to speak. She called it unneighborly and unchristlike. And it was just one of the ways where there was this unspoken, passive resistance to work among black people in the church. It's not like the church didn't care. The consistent stated policy of the church was that the South was a mission field and a priority in which both white and black people deserved to hear the gospel. They were equal. Adventists had been radical abolitionists from the beginning. But as we talked about last time, there was this growing trend of resistance, of just below the surface that was rising in the church. Now, it's easy to confront somebody who might come out and oppose the work in the South, right? If somebody writes a review saying, Edson's just wasting his time. Why are we even helping people down there? Why are we preaching down there? It's easy to confront somebody like that. But what Edson, Oakwood, and the black pioneers in the South faced was much harder to confront because it was harder to name But when you hold up the early work at Southern and Oakwood and the challenges they faced together, it's easier to find a name for it. And that name is blindness. Ellen White couldn't understand why the men and women at Southern wouldn't look down the street and see their sister school in need and help them. The reality is because they didn't see their sister school down the street at all. Edson's work, Oakwood's work, it was invisible. It was like if somebody asked you to name off all the states from memory. Now, chances are, if you're a visual person like me, Alaska and Hawaii are going to end up somewhere near the bottom because I don't encounter them every day unless you live there. 
conceptually, they're just off somewhere else. They are remote. They are separated from the life that's going on here in the contiguous United States. We know that those states are there. It's not that we're completely ignorant of them, but we don't really see them. And I'm going to step on some toes when I say this, but in a very real sense, this is still true in the church today. Ellen White's passion, really for the rest of her life, was trying to get anyone who would listen to see, to notice, to be aware of what was being done for and by our African-American brothers and sisters. Ellen White remained the foremost champion of the Southern work. And you really have to wonder how the work in the South might have been different had she been in America in the 1890s to lend her personal attention to it. But all we can do is wonder. Now, we've mentioned the names of a few black men who were working among their own people in the South. And if Edson had to promote and innovate and improvise in order to get what little money and attention he could for his work, how much harder do you think it was for a black pastor? Charles Kinney was most likely the first ordained Adventist black pastor. He was 10 when the Civil War ended and used his freedom to go west, where he found himself at one of John Loughborough's evangelistic series. I mean, side note, seriously, how do you escape Loughborough? Since the 1850s, this dude has been dragging a tent around the world. And when we turn to California, he's there. And when we go to England, he's there. And he's not done yet either, because that dude will survive every other early Adventist. Anyway, Kinney caught the bug when he heard Loughborough and, because she's also everywhere, Ellen White speak. He planted several of the first black Adventist churches in the South, begging all the while for the readers of the Review to send more help. Another preacher that we had was Louis Sheaf, who was, oh, insanely gifted. He was at the forefront of the church's discussions on race, and we'll connect with him a little bit more later on, but there's just one thing you need to understand about Sheaf and Kinney at this point, and that is that it was a lonely job. Sheaf, for instance, and a white preacher were both preaching in Louisville on one occasion, but whereas the General Conference sent a tent to the white preacher, Sheaf's tent didn't arrive. And when he made mention of that very politely, a tent did eventually arrive, but then again it was missing the main pole that was propping it up and the stakes that was needed to tie it down. Well, hey, you know what? This stuff happens, and it was part of the creed of any Adventist preacher in those days that you had to be self-sufficient. I mean, you had to be able to solve these problems of your own creativity and initiative. Well, that's great as far as that creed went, but that creed didn't take into account that Sheaf was black. So when the white preacher across town could go to the lumber store to charge any supplies he needed to an account, which the church would later pay, Sheaf couldn't. For him, it was cash only. And the white preacher also didn't have to contend with a gang of white teenagers who roamed the neighborhood, causing trouble. Sheaf was concerned about this, that he didn't sleep in somebody's house he had to sleep in the tent to stand guard to make sure it wouldn't be destroyed. And if you're one of these first black pastors, you certainly felt alone. I mean, sure, you were connected to the church, but despite all of the articles Ellen White wrote in your favor, you would always feel invisible. One way that we can know this, 
because very few white Adventists today have ever heard of Kinney or Sheaf. Now, they may have been invisible to most people, but they were noticed by Ellen White, and they were certainly noticed by God. The legacy they left is profound. E.E. E. Cleveland, for instance, who was a product of Oakwood and a mighty black preacher, set up his tent not far away in Montgomery, Alabama in the summer of 1954. A thousand people came to hear him speak, including Rosa Parks and a young Martin Luther King Jr. Afterwards, King had met Cleveland, and he said to him, I was informed that a black Billy Graham was preaching the gospel, but all I heard was the law, the law, and the law. Now, Cleveland was not shaken. He said, you must have arrived late, because all I preached was the Lord, the Lord, and the Lord. The rumor goes that Cleveland was in Baltimore, maybe about ten years later, still preaching in his tent, when Martin Luther King Jr., now famous, happened to be there also. King's driver was a Seventh-day Adventist, and when he saw Cleveland's tent, he told his driver to park the car, because they were going to go hear some good preaching. In the early 1900s, the Morning Star finished its job, though not before giving a ride to Ellen White. It sunk in 1905, and some of the pieces of it went to Oakwood, where you can still see them today, symbols of a great and trying sacrifice to reach a downtrodden and invisible people with the gospel, symbols of the Adventist vision, which believes that the gospel of Jesus will renew the whole person, physically, emotionally, intellectually, along with spiritually. The Morning Star had served its glorious purpose, but others would come and pick up the torch. But now, it's time for us to turn away from the South and jump on a different kind of boat to a different kind of land. Did somebody say Australia? Hey, it's me again. If this episode didn't quench your desire for more Adventist history content, then go subscribe to Adventist History Extra. It's a private podcast that I do for those who support the Adventist History Project. You can get access to Adventist History Extra on the website, which is AdventistHistoryProject.org, or by becoming a patron at Patreon.com. Now, there's more variety at Adventist History Extra, in case you were wondering. I do some interviews. Sometimes I do bonus episodes. You know, I, we had a good episode here in the Adventist History Podcast, and I want to talk some more about it. Other times, I go behind the scenes at conferences I attend, like the Women in Seventh-day Adventist History Conference. What's more, just as a second announcement for you, Michael Campbell and I are leading a bus tour in October 2024. So... If you want to go drive around New England a bit, see the, see the sights and have some fun, well, you can sign up for our bus tour newsletter, once again, at AdventistHistoryProject.org. And we're going to keep you up to date there about what you need to know to go and sign up for that and all of that. So just to be very, 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 very clear, we don't have a sign up for the bus tour itself, but it's a sign up for the newsletter so you can stay informed about the bus tour so I don't have to make announcements every single time and interrupt these episodes and all of that. That's where those announcements are going to be. So if you're interested, head on over to the website. You can sign up for the bus tour newsletter over there. Okay, I think that about does it. Thanks again for listening.